Hello, and thanks for joining us on the More Than Law Forsters podcast, a chance for us to go beyond the practice of law and have a chat about interesting things with interesting people. I'm Robert Lindenair Craig, the knowledge and practice development lawyer in the private client team at Forsters, and I'm joined today by my fabulous colleague, Laura Howarth. If you listened to our Space Junk episode, you'll already know that Laura, a senior associate in our commercial real estate team, has a particular interest in sustainability in the commercial property context. And whilst Laura is an expert to a degree, I had to step well outside my comfort zone. Laura kindly persuaded her old buddy from university days, Dr. Alex Pierce, to join us. Alex is the modeling lead in the power plant technology group at the UK Atomic Energy Authority. Alex took us on a fascinating journey explaining what fusion energy is and how we might one day be able to use it to power the grid. I hope you enjoy the adventure as much as Laura and I did. I'm so excited to be allowed to take the podcast on the road, this time coming to you from the HQ of the UK Atomic Energy Authority at a mystery location that is entirely noble and has a handy train station. Um, And we've got Alex, Dr. Pierce. Um, Thank you very much for letting me indulge my inner 12-year-old and having me here to talk about uh, fusion um, and fusion energy. Um, uh, I'm only sorry that Alex's old um, uni buddy is unable to join us in person, but in keeping with the zeitgeist over the past couple of years, she is joining us happily remotely, um, fresh from her fabulous podcast on Space Junk. So um, starting us off, it's um, particularly exciting um, to be coming and speaking to you in the wake of the official announcement that the first ever Step Fusion power plant is going to be built at West Burton A in Nottinghamshire. Um, I should say I'm a private client lawyer and I know less about atomic energy than the average 12-year-old. And to me, STEP means the Society of Trusts and Estates Practitioners. So as far as my knowledge on this subject goes, you are building the future here uh, and effectively making synthetic stars on Earth to power the world. It's my rudimentary understanding anyway. Um, So let's try and get some clarity on that. Um, It's probably best to get some actual knowledge about fusion energy. So um, Alex, can you explain in layman's terms the basics of how existing nuclear fission works in energy production and then contrast it to what fusion energy is? Uh, Yeah, sure. So I guess like a lot of things in physics, it it, it kind of begins with Einstein. So we've seen... Okay, we're going going right back. We're going right back. We're going right back. So so, like a lot of people know his very famous equation, the E equals MC squared, right? I've come across it. Yeah, 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 seen it in the Simpsons episode. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So... So what this is telling us is there's, you know, there's, you can exchange between energy and mass. And what we want to do, what we want to do in these kind of um, situations where we get energy out of like some nucleus, some atom, right, is we want to have some transmutation event. So if you're thinking about fission, you'd have a very big, heavy uh, atom and you kind of coax it to fall apart. And then if you would weigh them, after, like before it's a big atom, then it falls apart into some component bits and you'd weigh them, the weight is different. Right. And so when you have these big atoms afterwards, they tend to weigh less. And then, so that extra mass that's gone missing has to go somewhere. And we know from Einstein that it turns into energy and then the energy just becomes thermal energy and the thing heats up. Right. So, so you go for these reactions, it kind of transmutes from one thing to another. As in this case, there's a change in the mass and this causes it to heat up and then in this case you you know if you talk about nuclear fission you, you talk about nuclear fission you would have uh you just do these reactions in some water the water heats up turns to steam turns turbines creates electricity so mm-hmm. that's kind of roughly how that works now at the other end of the spectrum so in the kind of middle-sized atoms 
Right. If you want to uh, stick them together and make them fall apart, you need to heat them up. So they actually take some energy. They end up being more massive. So you need a bit more energy. But for the very, very small atoms, so things like hydrogen or something like this, so you've just got like, it's just a nucleus, maybe just like one proton or one proton and a nucleon, uh, neutron. Mm-hmm. Um, if you stick them together, so you do the opposite things. So you have big atoms, if you want to get energy out of them, make them fall apart. Little atoms, stick them together. If you can fuse them together, mm-hmm. then what's left over, the, you, you will stick two um, hydrogen atoms together and you get a helium atom. Mm-hmm. And that helium atom will heat up, right? It weighs less or has less mass. And then it, so it heats so up. So the sum of the two separate atoms as hydrogen yes. weighs more than what comes out at the other end. And that difference is what? It heats them up, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you get this, and then this, this process heats up. So, and we know this happens because this is how we believe or we, we hypothesize that what's going on in the sun, right? Right. So you've got... Um, Atoms which are coming together mm. and they're producing this excess energy. Mm. Um, and to date, in terms of how we use it um, in our lives day to day, it's done through fission where the atoms are separated. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and that leaves a byproduct and, 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 and waste. Whereas if you're bringing them together, you create a new. Um, you make, you, we we make helium and stuff. Yes, you'll make helium yeah. um, in this process. And there can be other byproducts in the sense that uh, you will have some fast neutron that comes off and you, that's where you collect that to get the energy. Yeah. Which- yeah. So, so, so it, and, and um, again, with my layman's hat on, um, as I understand it, you have waste that comes from nuclear fission, which is the thing that has to be dealt with. But from a carbon perspective, it's very um, uh, excellent um, as a source of energy with... Um, fusion, the byproduct is essentially helium. Um, so there's no there's no difficulty with storing um, matter like you have in fission. Um, and clowns can keep their balloons nicely stocked up, um, and we can all get lots of power. I was um, just about to ask that. that um, can you can you use the can you collect that helium and then use it? Yes, we, you, you would collect that helium and basically um, you can then later try and use it in some processes. There are ways you could think about doing that. Um, now, the main thing, if you're actually talking about like waste, mm-hmm. uh, let's, let's be absolutely clear. There is some waste that comes out of this. Now, mm-hmm. the process here is because um, maybe it's worth specifying that you you will try and make this fusion process happen. And there's, when the, 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 this helium is made, it will also spit out a, a fast neutron. Mm-hmm. This is, flies away. And that thing is very energetic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the thing that has a lot of the energy that we want to take out. So what we do is you would, you would try and have this fusion process happening. Um, and there are different ways you can try and do that. You would try and make a basically a bank of what you would use lithium-6 probably. Right. And the neutron will go in there and at some point it will be absorbed. Mm-hmm. And that would heat up, and then you will try and run some pipes through there, turn water or some other uh, thing into uh, steam, let's say, turn turbines, hopefully make electricity. That's the vegetable plan, right? Now, you will have all these components around, uh, which will be lots of ele- um, uh, neutrons flying around, and those neutrons can damage those components. Mm-hmm. And as they talk to those components or they, 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 they interact with them, they could make them uh, activate them, which, makes, which means to make, make them radioactive. So you might have things like tungsten paneling and things like this that you have in your machine. Now, 
So this process then, if you were to actually have a power station or indeed if you have just a plasma physics experiment where you're, you're interacting with these things, um, uh, that, that this will activate them becoming lightly a uh, low level radiation. So they to be, must be clear here. There, there is if you were to make one of these power stations, there would mm -hmm. be a radioactive waste, but it would be low level radiation. So the low level waste would be something where you you when you decommission the plant, you would take it away, and then you could store it safely somewhere for something on the order of a hundred years. Then it's yeah. safe. Um, but is there helium that comes out of it that Laura can use at her kids' birthday parties? There is helium that will be collected out of it, yes, and uh, that could and that it's could, use, that, usable, usable helium. Yeah, that could that could well be uh, an application for that, yes, I think. Um, so, in terms of the nuclear waste that comes out, two questions really: How long would you have to store the nuclear waste that comes from uh, nuclear fission um, in order for it to be safe? But also, what sorts of quantities are we talking about? Is it is it higher quantities from nuclear fission? Um, than fusion energy, or is it? Are we talking the same types of quantities, but it just doesn't take as long for it to become safe matter? So, to answer that very precisely, I'm not a fission expert, but I can definitely say that the, the timescales for like the half lives of the waste that comes out of a fission power plant is on the orders of tens of thousands of years. Like, it's basically like the timescale of like from here to I know agriculture, yeah. whereas the timescales for the fusion, you're talking about um, lightly radiated stuff, and it will be uh, they, well, it will be um, radioactive for about hundred years. So that's something a, a, a government or something can hopefully deal with. You just put it down a mine shaft or something, and, and that, that's manageable and and yeah. possible to tell the next generation what's there. Yeah, and hopefully at that point you would dig it up in 100 years and then you would have lots of steel or tungsten and you would just re you you you'd use it to make something else. Right. You wouldn't yeah. like yeah. Oh right, okay. Um because that that Laura you you have some expertise on um on waste um, management generally, don't you with these kind of things and and your um experience in solar. Yes, yeah, so um, something that whenever we're doing a drill that we're we're, we're looking at is uh, lamp contamination, and um, particularly, yeah, there are issues with um, solar panels and wind turbines that you know they we use metals to to manufacture the solar panels. Um, and sorry, I'm going to talk more about solar panels because that's where my experience lies more heavily. But um, yeah, there's issues with you know solar panels have a shelf life of sort of 25 to 30 years and um we're quite they're, they're quite new to us really we're not really sure yet what's going to happen to them when you get hundreds and thousands of these things reaching the ends of their useful lives and we've already got a load of defunct panels sitting in landfill and there is the risk that the um metals um that that are used to create those panels could sort of leak into the into the earth and cause contamination and it could especially if the if the landfill is near a, a water source it could get into the water source um and so the effect could actually be quite wide reaching um so that's that's the panels themselves but then also you know and and something that actually I wanted to ask Alex about was about how uh, consistently you can create electricity out of of this process because 
I mean, we all know that when the sun doesn't shine, you don't get electricity from your solar panels. So we have to have things like battery storage. And those storage facilities come with their own um, contamination issues. So, I mean, short answer to your question, yes. <laughs> Long answer. I mean, I could go on about, you know, the mining issues with um, getting the lithium from the, the salt flats in Chile where the the you know the water levels for the surrounding indigenous communities are getting lower and lower and it's making it unlivable for them um because it's actually quite a high water intensive um process and then you've also got issues with like battery leakages and recycling and um dealing with them at the end of their at the end of their lives so there's quite a lot of um issues that are still need to be dealt with it's greener than burning fossil fuels but it's not a hundred percent clean and it sounds like from what you're saying alex that uh, actually fusion energy is significantly better because the waste that it does produce is in manageable amounts is less radioactive than other byproducts from fission and is reusable at the other end of it well, yeah. So, yes, the, the, the say steel or the tungsten stuff that you, that would be need to be um, you take apart in the decommissioning process. Yeah, you would be after it is basically got past its several half lives, was no longer an activated substance. Then, yeah, you would uh, you, you would want to reuse that material in uh, some other construction project or something like this. Um, and just going back a little bit to basics. Am I right in thinking that fusion energy potentially produces a lot more um, than, uh, say, fission energy? Um, but I've had uh, what I've read has has suggested that it's difficult to harness the power. What does that actually mean? Yes, yeah, so it is a very challenging uh, kind of. It's a very challenging kind of engineering problem to solve on, on this planet because essentially what we're trying to do is recreate the sun, as you've said, on this planet. So you're trying to bottle a star is, is a term that's often used, and this is very hard because if you want to get these fusions to happen, um, you need to get this hydrogen, and you have it as a gas form, and you need to heat it up to very hot and you want to try and get reasonably dense or very dense so they'll collide together and you get these fusion events to happen which is going to generate the energy you want so then there's a question of well, how do i confine this kind of um gas and the, what we do is we turn it into a plasma so we would heat it up uh, and so you can put a large electric field across it and you can basically strip all the electrons off the off the atoms and it turns into a plasma so it's ionized what i should um, say that i only learned this morning um is that plasma is the next one above gas um going back to school physics i don't even remember this but it's 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 it's, it's solid liquid gas plasma that that is often what they say. Yeah, yeah. That's, that is a good so way that's to, often what they say. Or is is that way, very reductive? It's a good way to think about it. It's, okay. it's, it's a good way to think about it. Um, yeah, uh, and you know we see plasma around. Obviously, the sun is obviously plasma. It has, that's where you tend to get that kind of rolling shape. In fact, most of the matter in the universe is a plasma, simply because it's in stars and stuff. Mm. Uh, but also, people, you know, we remember those old uh, strip light like uh, uh, lights, the ones fluorescent tube lights. Fluorescent tube. I mean, that, that works. They just make a plasma, right? It's just right. It's just glowing, right? Uh, but the point is, we as a plasma, you can then um, it because it's charged now because mm -hmm. you kind of made it into this charged fluid, if you like. Uh, it now feels the effects of magnetic fields, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what we utilize. 
we try and use that magnetic field to make like a magnetic bottle. Mm -hmm. And then what we would do here is it turns out that the only way, the best, well, the simplest way to do this, let's say, is to make like a donut shape, like a magnetic donut bottle. Mm -hmm. And then you inject the gas into it and then you heat it up by essentially um, you use various methods to heat it up it flies around the donut very very fast and we'll start to collide with each other and that's what we do in various plasma physics experiments like jet which we host here on site which is so so i uh, you can confirm that where we are right now is where all of this stuff is actually happening at the moment well yes yeah, so, so anyway a lot of details there probably are people doing pulses on jet here today we're running campaigns so they are doing these kinds of experiments and jet is the largest operational tokamak in the world so the tokamak is what we call that kind of donut shape morphology right um, now when we inject the gas into one of those um, uh, this tokamak when we switch it on um, we can't make it as dense as the sun Mm -hmm. So we want it to be hot and dense, but we can't make it as dense as the sun, so we have to make it really hot. So we, with these things, when we operate JET, so I should explain that JET stands for the Joint European Taurus. Mm -hmm. It's a European project that was built in the early 80s, and it's now coming to the end of its life. Earlier this year, we did a set of campaigns where we managed to get the record for the most amount of energy produced over a pulse right. in this thing. Yeah. Now, that energy wasn't able to be collected, but we did manage to generate the most energy because we're not a power plant yet. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, just a, a physics experiment so we can understand how these things work to inform future uh, power plants. Now, yes, yeah, so we need to really heat this thing up. Mm -hmm. And so we, for the hottest uh, shots, would normally be at the order of 100 million degrees Celsius, which is like 10 times hotter than the center of the sun. Right. So when JET is doing operations and is doing its pulses, the hottest place in the solar system is basically South Oxfordshire. Wow. Okay. Because it's it's hotter than the sun. It's, you need to get it to that point to actually get these things to do fusions and get the kind of fusion energy that you want out of the system. And yet somehow this room's freezing. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is it is part of why you can see how the engineering of some of these things are very very difficult because the 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 extremes you need to get very this very complicated systems to stick together. Because one of the things you also do is you need to make these magnetic fields, how to, to confine this thing, to make this magnetic bottle. And the reason how we do that is we use magnets. Mm. And JET has big copper magnets at the moment because it was built in the 80s. But we know for a fact that when we come to make power stations, we're going to have to use superconducting magnets because they allow you to operate for longer and things like that. There's lots of really good properties you want to use them. But a superconducting magnet, to make it a really good magnet, uh, you need to operate it at the order of, let's say, 10, 20 degrees above absolute zero. So that would be about negative 160 degrees Celsius. So if you're thinking, and this is just to give an idea of the engineering challenges of trying to create these things, what you, what you essentially need to do is I need to make a plasma. I make, make the core of that plasma hotter than the center of the sun, about 100 million degrees, and then probably about four meters, five meters away, I need a superconducting magnet generating the magnetic field to make the kind of magnetic bottle, if you like. And that needs to be about 10 degrees uh, warmer than interstellar space. So right. so the, the temperature gradient is something on the order of like 
yeah, 100 million degrees. Is, and that is where the engineering challenges and these things do to make these very extreme uh, environments very, very close to each other. And that's kind of, yeah. So given the complexities of maintaining those two extremes, mm. how uh, feasible is it to create a continuous supply of energy from this method? Is it going to be something that sort of stop start or is it something that you can keep going? There is nothing in principle in physics or engineering that means you can't have a continuous pulse. So you would, and this is the aim for this kind of thing. It is one of the selling points again is this in principle is a base load technology in the sense it can just be a continuous. Right? Now, there are some reasons around where it kind of come down to like electronics. Uh, so jet, which we've already talked about, uh, that has a... That could, because that uses copper magnets, uh, that puts a limit on how long it can run a pulse just because otherwise the magnets heat up because they're resistive and they just get hotter and hotter and hotter. If you would keep running it, they'd melt. So they have to, that puts a limit on the order of a minute or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there have been pulses in other tokamaks in the world which use superconducting magnets. There is a, a tokamak in China called EAST, the experimental I don't know what the A stands for, superconducting tokamak. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they, they run pulses up to, I think, about 15 minutes. Right, okay. Uh, and because they can go long because they have... Um, I mean, these are all just proving the case that you can build these things, right? Right. Um, but in principle, when you think about future power stations, we would think we would be aiming to do pulse lengths um, on the order of several hours. And then once you've done that, you basically have to essentially reset your magnets and then you can just go again. So it's not like it's 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 because of some electronics kind of uh, constraints, but in principle there is no reason that you couldn't have one of these things running continuously, and that's absolutely the aim. Mm-hmm. It just involves a different set of uh, another um, another set of kind of engineering problems you have to solve essentially. So is it something that can be done with two tachymaks, perhaps um, side by side? So there is always one going when the other is turned off to reset the magnets. The aim would be the resetting magnets would take hopefully on the order of like tens of minutes. Like it's not so, and it would take a long time. And also, um, uh, there are also designs of future ones. So, for instance, you previously mentioned STEP. STEP hopes to run eventually continuously. We should say, what does STEP actually stand for? Spherical tokamak for energy production. So, that is what we're actually looking for for commercial real world use. Yeah. So, maybe, yeah, maybe. It, Maybe it's worth me kind of laying out the kind of roadmap, the the fusion. Before we just move on from this topic, could I just ask, Mm -hmm. um, to maintain those extremes, you obviously need a lot of energy. And so presumably the energy output must be extremely high in order Mm -hmm. to actually the, the net effect being the creation of energy rather than it all being used up by the process of... Certainly, I remember at school being taught that hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe, but it doesn't occur anywhere naturally. And so energy is required to actually get that hydrogen in the first place. Is that right? No, I mean, the hydrogen, finding the hydrogen. So the hydrogen fuel that we would want to use, firstly, um, we want to use two forms of the heavier hydrogen, not the normal hydrogen we, we would we would um, use because this makes they, they make the helium preferentially make the helium so we're talking about what we call first deuterium so this is a heavy hydrogen which is uh the nucleus is made of one proton and one neutron and then we'd also want to use in the gas that we would heat up uh, tritium which is an even heavier hydrogen which has one proton and two neutrons now 
getting hold of the deuterium is essentially uh, well understood in the sense that there's some proportion of all seawater or water that you drink has deuterium in it. And then process engineers are very smart people. They know how to essentially filter out the helium for that. That's the kind of, kind of solved problem. And then the tritium is a bit more tricky because tritium is actually uh, radioactive, has a half-life on the order of, I think, seven years. Um, and there isn't that much of it naturally occurring, but there is stuff around. And also, uh, crucially, what we would do is we, for to make a fusion power plant make sense, it would have to self-generate its own tritium. So what we would do is we talked about before that we would actually use a lot of lithium-6 and this is where we would collect the um, these neutrons to then the lithium six heats up and then we use that heat pass into some water which turns to steam and goes into turbines. The reason we want to use lithium six for this is if the neutron hits the lithium six, it turns into more tritium. Right. And it self and it self generates, it self -generates the thing. So we, we, we so we hopefully creates the tritium it needs for its own fuel. Hmm. Um, but to come to Laura's point. Yeah, you need to generate. There, there is a lot of energy that is needed at the moment to to operate these magnets and stuff like this to confine these things. So, for instance, the jet operation room, they have a direct line to the national grid. And the national grid can phone them up sometimes. They, no, we don't, we, you know, it's the middle of a, I know, a football match or something. You can't do experiments right now. The grid's stressed out or something. Right. Um, and they, so they... So there is definitely, there is a large amount, but what we have to go to is go to the larger scales where we have power plants. We'll get to larger scales such we, we do get the power plants. So you, it is worth talking about like the, the fusion energy out versus the energy you put in. At the moment, no one has ever done a fusion experiment where you've got more energy out than you put in. Let's be, have to be clear about that. No one's done that. So JET has got the ratio of, I think it is actually 0.69. So so they, they they've got... 69% of the energy out that they put in. So there's a few things. One, it's scaling this up because so you have a larger volume of plasma. So there is more um, reactions happening. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of it is you can't just generate that, that fusion power. You then need to collect the neutrons that come off it, mm -hmm. like with this lithium-6 I've talked about before. And then once you collect that, you can then turn that into a heat that you can then turn into electricity yeah so in technology terms this this is a huge leap forward um you said that there is a step roadmap um, how do we get from what is currently a science experiment in south oxfordshire to a functioning power plant in nottinghamshire yeah sure absolutely so i think i think a good phrase I've heard that I quite like is fusion is a technology for the second half of the century. Right. Because that is the kind of, that is the roadmap that we've kind of laid out of like how we're going to go about doing this. And how it will be used is worth saying also depends on what the energy market looks like in the 50 years. And I, I'm not going to predict that. But this, this, you know, we do think that it has a good play, a role to play. But yeah, it's laid out the roadmap. So at the moment, the largest tokamak in the world is JET, which is here on this site. And that is going to be decommissioned soon because yeah. it's been around for a while. It's done lots of very good, good experiments. The next thing that's going on that we're... So, and it's obviously the JET is a European project. And then next biggest one is being constructed at the moment in the south of France in Cadarache, and it's called 
ITER. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of. And so ITER is an international project and in, involves, um, uh, well, the EU, the UK, Korea, Japan, Russia, the USA, Canada, and Canada. It's a very international project um, to build uh, a much bigger machine. Mm-hmm. The in principle would be able to. Why well, it is still for, crucially, it is still a, uh, a science experiment. It is not a power yeah. plant. It's just a. It's just scaling everything up to basically prove that once you go up to those bigger scales, everything still works as we would think it will. And in print, but in principle, that should be able to operate at a range where it can, it will generate more fusion power than the power you put in. We'll, we'll learn a lot of things about how plasmas react when you kind of make them more energetic because we want to learn about these things. And then, so, so uh, uh, ITER is being constructed at the moment. Uh, hopefully, its first plasma will be around 2025, 2026. Uh, and then on top of that, there's probably two projects that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Firstly, let's talk about the demo project, which is the EU project that we we still work on here, which is to build a tokamak that would actually be a, we call it demo, because it's the demonstration power plant. The point of this thing is to produce uh uh, to produce something that proves all the complicated engineering systems can be built together and, and interact with each other in the correct way. And that is the aim to build a power plant that hopefully has a net electric output of half a gigawatt right. in the 2050s, early 2050s. Now, the UK has also set up another project called STEP. This is the, yeah, the uh, spherical tokamak for energy production which we're working on here uh, to the current kind of conceptual design phase. Um, and that is the idea to build a tokamak that will, again, demonstrate all the technologies and will put energy onto the grid uh, in the early 2040s. Oh, so actually it's it's fairly soon then in terms of the generally very long timelines for developing this sort of technology. It is an aggressive timeline, mm. but we, we, we've, you know, we've said that we could, we've the idea that we can do this. Yeah. Uh, and yes, as you said before, we recently announced the, the site that we would hope to build this on. Go ahead, and that's in yeah Nottinghamshire. Yeah, this is the whole point. This just needs to prove that this thing, all these things work, and it has to include all the switching stations and all the things. Um, that will be this is why one of the reasons why I chose to put it on the site is currently a coal power plant there. Yeah. So we want to go from coal to fusion. Yeah. And it's got all the connections to the national grid, and we've just we so if the project is a success, it has to put energy onto the grid because that's yeah. the point to prove that you can do that. Um, so um, when I was thinking about this podcast, one of the questions that I had that came up in my mind was in the future, could all of our, our electricity come from um, this fission, uh, fusion sorry, technology? But I guess it's all it's all just pieces of a, pu- a puzzle at the moment, isn't it? I mean, A, we don't know how much energy, we don't yet know how much energy we're going to be able to get out of it but I, I guess there's all sorts of contributing factors like you said about um the the football matches and not being able to get enough electricity to run the experiments uh, at certain times but I mean there's a the grid is so overstretched as it is you've got housing developments waiting 10 years to be connected because there just isn't the capacity in the grid so it's all all these factors need to come together in order for this to to get off the ground. Um, and, and presumably also in terms of the changes in the way that we are consuming energy as we move away from fossil fuels in favour of electricity and, and put more pressure on the grid. Yeah, so 
Um, yeah, it's a question of what the energy market looks like in the sense that it's probably going to be more decent, uh, decentralized in the sense you might have more people with, um, you know, lots more people with uh, solar panels and stuff on their houses. Uh, and obviously, also, as well, if you're thinking of a lot of green technologies, if you already, as you've already talked about, they can often, you know, be intermittent in the sense that they have, you know, wind or solar. Now, obviously, Fusion has the advantage that it's a base load. Like, if you, if you build this plant, it would just generate this power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so that is kind of where we see that Fusion would be useful. And there's nothing in principle stopping, you know, Fusion powering everything, but that's probably not where we're going to be, right? Mm-hmm. Because people, we're going to have solar, we're going to have solar panels, wind, and these things are also going to expand over the, the same time horizons that we're talking about about making fusion, realizing an actual fusion power station puts up the grid. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's definitely a role to play, in particularly in yeah that base lo- base load kind of technology where where fusion can really find its niche. If you need to reduce carbon emissions by 2050, this isn't. Let's be honest here. This isn't gonna. This isn't the silver bullet, but it does, in some sense, give you the off ramp off that point because you've got to think about there are statements about how much the world's demands for energy are going to increase over the entire century as more and more people demand more power as various countries industrialize and so on and so forth. Hopefully, people's living standards are increasing. Mm. They're going to more and more energy, and this is just another way of, well, hopefully, be a way that we can generate large amounts of energy to meet those needs going forward. Mm. I suppose um, it's, it's the battle doesn't end in 2050. We don't mm-hmm. reach net zero and that's it because we need to sustain that. And um, I mean, I touched on before how all of these sort of greener methods of generating energy that we have are not 100% green. So there's always going to be room for improvement. So in terms of location, if Laura's working on the development of a new fusion plant in the future, what are the key characteristics of the land that she's going to need to know about that are specific to this kind of infrastructure? Um, in my ignorance, I was surprised, for example, that the newly announced fusion energy plant is going to be in landlocked Nottinghamshire rather than on the coast where it seems most nuclear fission plants are. You, you do. Uh, water is a very desirable, uh, is a desirable thing, but it's kind of two parts. One, if you want a, a decent supply of water that you can then use in various your subs- subsystems that you might use for... steam and turbines and stuff like this Uh, but it is also directly on a river it's crucial to say the the site another because another reason that you want to take into account is simply you're probably at various points going to build very big so some of the components you would think about if we're building stamp are probably going to be very large and particularly things like magnets and things like this so just simply being able to put them on a barge or something and move them around is a hugely cost uh, effective way of moving big bits of engineering kit around rather than trying to put on a truck and drive them down little country lanes. Mm-hmm. When we're doing any transaction in commercial real estate, something we're always looking at is obviously the land needs to be fit for purpose for the needs. So when we're talking about solar, we're, we're looking at nearby roads and railway lines, making sure there's not going to be issues with like glint and glare, making sure the panels aren't going to be um, overshadowed so that they'll be able to generate the electricity and also making sure that there's an adequate cable route to get the electricity to the grid so what sort of um what sort of issues if there are any do you have to look at for these these power stations is there any sort of specific requirements does it need to be high on a hill um does it need to be near waterways that sort of thing it is high well there are 
there are lots of properties that are highly desirable, essentially. I think if you're if you're thinking about this and there's some trade-offs, you have to take these things into account. So you you would very much like to be near a body of water, whether it's a river or the sea. That seems a useful thing um, for reasons we talked about. Um, other things that if you're trying to find a good a good side to build a power the fact that that place is already connected to the grid somehow um, is is something that would be very desirable. Another important thing that might drive your decisions is actually the uh, kind of geology in the local area because you can do a big construction site, mm. and there's a d decent reasons where it might be uh, a good idea when you actually have the the power plant to kind of sink it into the ground. Mm. Yeah. And obviously, if that's solid rock, that gets very very expensive. Mm. So the actual geology of the place, as you might consider for any other kind of construction project. Uh, will, will definitely drive your decision of where you want to place it. And so just thinking from energy security perspectives of different countries, it's not particularly affected by different environments, um, as in as in would be able to operate regardless of whether it's in a sub-zero climate or an island paradise. Yeah, in principle, it doesn't strike me as an immediately obvious thing that you couldn't, you couldn't build it in certain hotter climates or colder climates, because, I mean, essentially the whole point here is the plasma you're making needs to be fully isolated yeah. right yeah. so it shouldn't you shouldn't know if the plasma knows it's raining then something's gone terribly wrong <laughs> yeah yes uh, I'm, i might not be a scientist but i am confident that would not be an indicator of uh, success um anyway moving on alex in terms of the regulatory context where are we on getting a framework that will make an operationally viable fusion energy plant yeah, so this is something there's actually been work on so the government actually put out a, a green paper a few years ago and then asked from stakeholders mm -hmm. to get their inputs and and so on because they kind of recognize that you know there are now a growing number of uh private fusion companies doing how working on other kinds of fusion uh based technologies or maybe other approaches to fusion uh, so they want to want to put some certainty going forward for the kind of industry so it understand what it wants. so they they came back after that uh kind of uh process of speaking to various people and so on so they recently um i think a few months ago came back and gave their uh feedback on that or gave the feedback to that it was basically recognized that yes they definitely want to go ahead and actually build a regulatory framework for fusion uh crucially they um basically came to the point that it, they realized that uh it would be uh it wouldn't it would be unwise to essentially just naively apply the regulation that exists in nuclear fission and just apply that to fusion energy so they basically said no we want you need to have a, a bespoke distinct uh, regulatory framework that kind of understands the different uh, pressures and safety issues and stuff that are unique to the fu uh, fusion and the f growing fusion industry right. so at the moment there is no uh, framework or secondly, regulatory framework in the world, but the UK is now probably going to be the first country to produce uh, a framework, a template, a template for how that might work. Yes. So you are likely going to still need those signs on areas of storing the <laughs> the waste that are designed to make sense to absolutely anyone, whether they be from Earth or 
Oh, well, hopefully we'll... Hopefully Otherwise, we'll, or do you, you think you'll get your own specific... Are you yeah. expecting people from Mars to come? Well, and find, no, they you know, don't you have signs on the nuclear waste storage places yeah, so, to say that? Yes, yeah, so, so the new... Yeah. The, 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 you should look it up on like Wikipedia and stuff. It's very eerie. They, they've, they tried to design this thing where the idea is like it's after the end of the world and some like cavemen find, find this thing. Mm-hmm. And they will see these signs, and they'll know this is a place you shouldn't go. Mm-hmm. Um, but they specifically designed this. It's, it's a bit. It's quite eerie and creepy. If you, can, but it's worth looking up. Uh, the lucky answer is no. We won't need to do that. Hopefully, because they're going to be low-level stuff. So we won't need to have this. Like you know, do not come here. You will die. We know you need to keep them safe. Of course, and I'm almost certain there will be signs saying, "Don't enter this this you know mine shaft or something where we we place these." Well, this is it. well. This is exactly the point because the the the, the lifetime of these things will be in the order of hundred yeah. years. So, you, you entirely manageable. Entirely, hopefully, civilization won't end in the next hundred years. So. Well, that's quite optimistic the way it looks out there on some days. One of the principal reasons for a proper regulatory framework, of course, is to make sure that the science is implemented and operated safely. So. Is fusion energy a safe means of powering our future? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the, of course, like anything, there's going to be safety concerns. We've talked about some of the irradiated materials from beforehand. You will also have tritium as part of one of your fuels, and that is uh, something you need to handle with care and safely. But one, I think one of the crucial things to say about fusion is it's, it's very hard to do, right because you're trying to have this extreme environment where you have this plasma but it also means that if your plasma becomes unstable which can happen we call these disruptions um as soon as it kind of disrupts uh it it's it becomes unconfined and it just stops it just mm-hmm. dissipates right it's because it is so like this thing there is no equivalent to like a a critical event or something or at least a critical event that would release you know there is there is no equivalent to a chain reaction because mm-hmm. like, you get in like a fission uh, situation so it's kind of a function of the fact that this thing is quite a challenging environment to set up and it is quite extreme mm-hmm. because of that if you kind of perturb it a bit then it just stops right uh, and that situation that these kind of um yeah critical events will not happen Uh, So we've already established that on some days it can be hotter than the sun in South Oxfordshire, which is figuratively, if not literally, pretty cool. Um, What other factoid um, could you give us about fusion energy that would be helpful on a pub quiz? Yeah, uh, I think another thing to think about as part of the engineering problem that you have, which makes these very cool things, is simply the fact that when we build these things, and this includes jets, um, when we want to go fix a tile or, or something like this, and this would also be true of future power plants, a person can't go in there, right? So we have to use robots. So there are actually lots of robots involved in fusion. And actually on site, we have uh, RACE, which is uh, the kind of autonomous um, uh, robotics group here. And they have uh, look after various robots that are used to maintain jets. And they also do lots of work on robots you might use for uh, remote maintenance in the future. Mm-hmm. And if you see in Jet, they have this thing called Mascot that comes out. 
and uh, will be used to, it's like an arm that can kind of enter the machine and it will kind of be able to move around. It's almost like an arm, but if your arm was entirely made of wrists, so it can, it can bend in multiple ways and it's able to go in there and like remove a tire, change a tile or, or check, inspect things and stuff. So another thing that I don't think people appreciate, and I certainly didn't appreciate before I started working here, is there's lots of people who are very interested in robotics and stuff, these things as well. It's quite cool. I have to confess that just this morning I watched one of the UK AEA videos on YouTube where there were robot arms at your facility playing Jenga. Well, I can't thank Laura and Alex enough for joining me and I'm immensely grateful to Alex for getting me past security to see the science in action. I'm happy to report um, I left the site unharmed by my proximity to temperatures exceeding the suns. Um, in the show's notes, we will put some links to places where you can find more information on some of the points we covered. I particularly recommend watching the mascot twin robots playing Jenga. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion today as much as Laura and I did. Um, if you'd like to keep up to date with future episodes of More Than Law or listen to our back catalogue, you can find and follow us on all of the finest podcast platforms. Um, we welcome feedback at Forster's, so if you have any ideas or comments, please do consider leaving us a hopefully five-star review. In the meantime, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Forster's Law and Law podcast is for general information only and should not be considered to be professional advice. Forster's LLP accepts no liability or responsibility for any direct or consequential loss arising from the use of, reliance on or reference to this podcast. Forster's LLP makes no warranty or representation as to the accuracy of the information contained in this podcast. The More Than Law podcast and any copyright in it is the property of Forster's LLP and it shall not be used, reproduced or quoted, whether in whole or part, without Forster's LLP's prior written consent. For a first time visitor, I mean, I, I, I won't lie, I was actually listening to uh, James Bond soundtrack as I came in. <laughs>